Greetings, everyone. I'm Dan Saunders, and this is the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast, where our goal is to provide value to the nonprofit community and to kickstart groundbreaking discussion. And we aim to do that by advocating for a 360-degree approach to nonprofit marketing. Now, the first question you may be asking is, what is a 360-degree approach to marketing? Now, I agree it's a little bit buzzy, so I'll break down my definition. In my opinion, 360 degrees means not looking at marketing as an either-or proposition. So not asking yourself, should our organization be fundraising via direct mail, or should we be doing it via email, or reaching out on social? It literally means going to wherever your donors are, regardless of the platform or regardless of the channel, and delivering them relevant content or relevant asks um, to that platform. And not viewing those platforms and channels as competitors with each other, but instead looking at your um, fundraising plan with a global focus and figuring out how these channels work better and support each other. And today we're going to look at an often overlooked component of nonprofit marketing, but one that has a ton of promise that has already been realized in the for-profit sector, and that is content marketing. All right, so content marketing. And before we get started, I'm going to tell you that if you stick around for just a few minutes, I am going to give you four examples of content marketing that almost any nonprofit Correction, every nonprofit, that's right, every nonprofit in America can utilize on um, no or a very low budget. Um, But before I get to that, I think it's important to go back to the origins of content marketing because it's become a big buzz term in the industry. Uh, Cottage industry has sprung up over the last few years. A lot of it is associated with uh, digital marketing. And um, it... It's one of those things that if you ask 10 people, what is content marketing, um, you will probably get 10 similar but different um, definitions. So I'll give you my definition, pretty straight and simple. Content marketing is anything which provides value or access to your donors or customers. Now, keep those in mind, value and access, because they're gonna be very important later on when I get to the examples. But as far as the origin of content marketing goes, uh, the godfather of uh, content marketing is actually a a very unlikely source. It's actually John Deere. That's right, John Deere, the tractor company that's associated with the big green tractors and and their hats. Um, John Deere's been around uh, going back to 1837, and in the 1890s, they took the very unusual step at the time to launch a news magazine. Um, Don't think there were any companies in there or any other space that were really doing this type of thing. So it was a pretty bold step at the time. And the magazine, which is still around today, is uh, called The Furrow. And it's dedicated to providing farmers with practical information devoted to the interests of better farming. And over the years, The Furrow built up a huge following, actually got, uh, the circulation actually got as large as 4 million customers, and there's still 2 million people that read it today. So um, throughout the history of the furrow, they have provided valuable content to the farming communities. And what made the furrow very unique um, in marketing terms back then was that it wasn't about selling tractors. In fact, with the exception of uh, John Deere putting their name on the front and making it clear that they were publishing the magazine... John Deere was barely referenced in it. 
Um, there weren't ads for John Deere products. Um, the write-ups that were in there were not specifically about John Deere products. It was really dedicated to providing value and information to farmers. Now that point about no ads was an important one because that's another critical component of content marketing. Besides providing value and access, content marketing generally does not overtly ask the reader to take an action. It's about building a relationship. So for John Deere, instead of trying to sell tractors, they were publishing um, articles about, uh, about farming trends and challenges facing the farming community and um, general news about farming. And I think this is one of the reasons why content marketing hasn't taken off more in the nonprofit space, although there are a lot of nonprofits that are doing good work right now. Um, it's, it's so counterintuitive to our mission as nonprofit marketers to put out information without making an ask, because generally speaking, um, if you don't ask the donor to make a donation, they're not going to on their own. So it does involve building a, uh, a different type of mentality towards building a long-term relationship with the reader, gaining trust, giving them access and information, and eventually working your way up to the point where they feel confident to respond positively when you do make that ask. But let's look at the John Deere example um, because although they were not selling tractors, let's look at some of the things that uh, the furrow was doing positively. And I think you're going to see a lot of applications here to what nonprofits can do with content marketing. So for one thing, probably most importantly, the furrow was providing existing customers with valuable information and content relevant to the mission of John Deere. So that point is an important one as well, that the furrow was not designed to be uh, handed out on street corners. It was designed to be um, provided to people who were already customers to build a more meaningful relationship. And that's a really good way for nonprofits, I think, to initially think about content marketing is this is a way to develop more meaningful relationships with your donors because if you just put a bunch of information out there and you expect it to produce a bunch of revenue, usually doesn't work that way. But when you look at it as a way to enhance the value of your existing customers, that's a little bit um, more likely to happen in the short term. Um, the second thing was that it established John Deere as an authority figure. And that's a key point as well, that content marketing, what it does when you put it out there was... If you're in um, a, any type of business that's highly commoditized, where there's a lot of people that do the same thing as you, and the nonprofit space can be like that as well. There's a lot of great organizations that all work on very similar causes. When you put out information, it establishes you as an authority on the issue that although there may be a lot of different organizations um, that work in the same area as you, you're the information provider, you're the expert, and you're demonstrating your knowledge and your proficiency on the issue by putting out information. The furrow also, um, and this is, is critically important, uh, not just for content marketing, but for nonprofit marketing in general, it employed empathy and it was customer centric. So think about the ads that I, uh, the, the articles that I was talking about, that they were focusing on challenges facing the farmer. 
And what this did was it was deploying information that um, was really looking at things through the eyes of the customer. So this was not so much about um, the goals of John Deere as a company. It was John Deere explaining, we understand the struggles of being a farmer in America, and um, we want to provide you information to help. It was not... Um, it was not uh, self-serving in any way. And that's really important that any type of content marketing that, um, especially nonprofits basic, it's put out is that it's seen as being f uh, donor-centric, that it's not self-serving and, self, uh, and, and you're not promoting yourself. Um, you're using empathy to address issues of concern of the, uh, the reader. And the fourth thing that the furrow accomplished, and this might be most important of all of these points, is that it created a positive presence in the buyer's mind in between purchases. Now, buying tractors and making donations may not seem like similar activities, but they do have something in common in that there could be a long period of time uh, that lapses in between transactions. And what the furrow did was it consistently put the brand name of John Deere literally on the kitchen table of, um, of, of buyers so that when they were coming to the point of making another purchase, the name John Deere was fresh in their mind. And that's how nonprofits should look at nonprofit marketing is that when your donor comes up on a period of time where they're ready to make another donation, because remember, most donors um, do not contribute to a single organization. They may have... Um, many organizations that they donate to. Some of the best donors could could uh, support um, six to 12 organizations or more. Um, it's very important to have your brand name in their mind so that when they're ready to make that purchase, you're the first brand that comes to mind and you're first up in consideration for uh, that transaction. And, and the parallel that I would make is McDonald's spends millions of dollars on social media uh, marketing, and it's all content-based. McDonald's is not doing that to sell french fries, but McDonald's does spend money on content marketing so that when you're hungry, you think of McDonald's french fries first. So now we've reached the point of the show where I'm going to give you, as promised, four examples of content marketing that any nonprofit in America can implement. And I say that because I think when we think about content marketing often, we think about um, expensive videos or documentaries or features that are slickly produced and cost thousands of dollars. And um, don't get me wrong, if your organization has the budget and resources to produce something like that, by all means, uh, highly produced videos are certainly part of content marketing, but the important part here is the value that you're bringing to the donor. And what I'm gonna try to illustrate here with these four examples is that you don't have to spend a lot of money to bring a lot of value to donors. And I think um, one of the barriers for nonprofits before they commit to a content marketing strategy is often that idea that it's going to be something that's gonna be cost prohibitive. And as I'm gonna show you, that's not necessarily the case. 
So the first idea is uh, going to go old school, and it's the print newsletter. That's right, the print newsletter. And I put that first for two reasons. One, because too often content marketing is solely associated with digital marketing. Now, certainly with uh, social media in particular, uh, it creates limitless opportunities for content marketing. But um, content marketing does not need to be online. In fact, uh, the print newsletter is probably one of the oldest um, versions of content marketing that nonprofits have used over the years. And I believe a lot of organizations may have actually shifted away from the print newsletter um, as email was coming up, um, especially in the early part of the 21st century. Um, and, and that makes sense um, in an attempt to save on paper and postage. And print newsletters are not always um, inexpensive. Um, but I think there was a missed opportunity there. And, and a lot of organizations uh, don't do or never did a newsletter at all. Um, for, for a variety of reasons. But particularly, uh, there is something special and unique about print and holding something tangible in your hands, in, even in the digital age. And there's a lot of studies to this effect, but the one I'm going to cite is from UK Royal Mail that found that print lasts longer. Um, it gives a longer mental impression in the mind of the reader compared to uh, something that's read online. And it makes customers feel more valued and have a more authentic relationship than something that uh, is sent to them digitally. Uh, there's probably a couple reasons for that, but um, first and foremost is the fact that uh, it is a different experience, as we all know, anyone that's ever gone to the mailbox, um, opening up a piece of mail and reading it, internalizing the message. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into that than just reading an email or um, or, or reading an article online. Um, but I think also the effort too, whether that's a conscious or subconscious thing on the part of the reader, uh, the fact that somebody is going through the effort, especially in this day and age where there is not as much competition in the mailbox of sending you something in the mail, it just makes it seem uh, a little more important. And here's a quote um, from, that sur uh, from that study. And it says, Giving, receiving, and handling tangible objects remain deep and intuitive parts of the human experience. And uh, I think that's a, a super important quote because I think we lose it sometimes um, in the digital age when it's so easy to take uh, things like print newsletters and put them online. It seems like such an easy thing to do. Um, but the fact is, I think people, um, even more more and more so over the last few years um really crave that tangible experience and um you know we're we're seeing that real things still matter uh, in fact there there's a book by that name I believe it's uh uh real things matter uh, I'll link to it in the show notes um that's not specifically about mail but just the idea that the tangible objects um you know still have a different experience uh, even in the digital age and the other thing I would add with the print newsletter is um, it, it's not strictly, you know, we, I mentioned before that um, content marketing usually doesn't have a ask associated with it. Uh, but the fact is, is that for many organizations, uh, print newsletters uh, represent phenomenal fundraising opportunities. And um, that doesn't mean that you make the newsletter about the ask, because that would go against um, the theory of content marketing. But 
even just including a reply device in there or a, a buck slip, um, at giving the donor an opportunity, making sure that they know that they can send back a donation. Again, if you if you ask, more often than not, donors uh, will respond as opposed to them just doing it um, voluntarily without there being an ask in there. And many organizations find that their newsletter mailings are um, are, are not just supplemental to the bottom line, but in some cases are some of their best fundraisers altogether. So um, keep that in mind. If, if you know of an organization or if you're with an organization that has never done uh, a print newsletter um, or has shifted it online, if you've shifted it online, you can always do an A-B test. Try to bring it back to half of the house file uh, first before going full bore. Always recommend testing responsibly regardless of what the test is. And um, seeing if it does make a difference uh, in your fundraising numbers, putting uh, tangible objects into the donor's hands. And uh, as far as what can be in a newsletter, um, really um, it can be anything that's programmatic about your organization. You know, sometimes organizations think that they don't have a lot to say or to put in a newsletter, um, but in reality, if you sat down and you made a list of everything programmatically that your organization does, all the people that they touch, everyone that's impacted by it, um, you could pretty easily put together a six to eight page newsletter. Uh, remember, your your donors are enthusiasts about your cause and they want information. So just because something seems um, academic to you or, or not all that exciting, um, it's information that your, your donors are going to want to hear. They want to hear what your organization is doing. And besides that, um, you can always write about um, about issues related to your cause, even if it's not even if it's not directly related to your work. You know, so if you are an organization that works with veterans, um, you could write on other veterans issues and, and raise awareness and use your newsletter to disseminate information on things related to your mission. That's something that's very valuable, just disseminating information. Um, uh, and, um, you know, just another quick idea of something that could be put in a newsletter is um, you can talk about individuals that are impacted. So do profiles uh, for an organization that helps homeless vets. You could do um, profiles on, on individual uh, veterans that have been helped by your organization. Um, even if you don't profile people that your organization has helped directly, again, going back to the idea of disseminating information, you can do profiles on um, on, on veterans in general that have a great story because it's still related to your mission. Remember, the, the John Deere example is so important for this reason. John Deere was not about tractors. Um, it was about issues related to challenges of farming in America. So if you think about that broad spectrum, your organization has plenty that you can um, use to uh, fill up a newsletter, whether it's on a monthly or a quarterly basis. Now with idea number two, we're going to go from old school to new school with Facebook Live. And Facebook Live has been an absolute game changer for nonprofit organizations that want to uh, do content marketing because before Facebook Live, if you wanted to put up video on the internet, you needed somebody to shoot the video, to edit it, um, to upload it. You needed somebody that knew how to do all of those things, which is uh, sometimes a challenge for bandwidth challenged organizations, as we know. 
But with Facebook Live, you can literally stream video on the internet with the push of a button, and uh, that removes a lot of barriers to entry for nonprofit organizations that want to make video part of their content marketing strategy. And while everything we're going to talk about with Facebook Live um, does have a value component, Facebook Live is really where you can focus on bringing your donors increased access to your organization. So a couple ideas. Um, if your organization hosts any live events or discussions or speakers or anything like that, um, un unless your donors um, physically attend those events, those are things that they only see on paper. So they may be aware that your organization puts on these educational events, but it doesn't have the same impact as if they can actually view them. So uh, streaming uh, your events that your organization hosts on Facebook Live, um, that's an automatic, that should be at the top of the list of things that you are incorporating uh, on Facebook Live. The other thing is your programmatic activity. Um, the example I'm gonna cite from this is um, an organization which really um, is a pioneer as far as I'm concerned with uh, content marketing for nonprofit organizations, and that's uh, Charity Water. And um, they uh, are dedicated to um, providing um, people all over the world with access to fresh water. And uh, early on, one of the things that they realized was that they had to deliver uh, content online um, to their donors to get repeat gifts and eventually recurring gifts, which they're focusing more on now. Um, but early on, they started uh, streaming videos of um, workers actually drilling these wells um, in, in countries. And um, it really it, it really brought home in a very tangible sense um, what the organization was doing and the impact it was having. And, and it's very different than reading about it on paper. Um, before, we talked about the power of print, but there are some things that when you see them, it just drives it home that much more how powerful um, the, the, the differences that the organization is making and the impact that your donation is having. Um, the other thing, and going back to the programmatic activity real quick, um, again, if you're an organization who helps the homeless and um, if you operate uh, soup kitchens or food pantries or things like that, anything that your organization is doing on the ground, um, you should be at least streaming some of that on Facebook Live um, just to, to give the donors a really tangible sense of exactly what you're doing on the ground. Because again, it's, it's different seeing it than it is reading about it in a fundraising appeal or a newsletter. Um, the other thing you can do, and again, this is very much along the access line, is um, have live Q&A sessions with experts in your organization. So if you're a health-related charity and you have um, doctors on staff, um, really, and anyone that's an expert in your organization, um, doing live Q&A with donors and giving them access, that, that's extremely valuable because... Although uh, we all try to be empathetic in our printed materials and the stuff that we put out, whether it's uh, social media posts or, uh, or, or anything else that goes out, outbound to the donor, um, it's never the same as when that donor can ask you questions directly. So doing live Q&As, um, even if it's just a, a weekly or um, 
a monthly update from the president of your organization and they take a few questions, uh, you can have somebody off camera who's vetting out the questions so they're not completely caught off guard. That stuff's extremely valuable in it. And it creates um, the perception that you're an organization that's open, transparent, and you're making um, you're, you're making yourselves available to the donor. It it makes it um, literally a two way conversation that you're having with them. This other idea is going to be a little bit out of the box, but it just demonstrates how wide open the field is. If you're talking about how to utilize Facebook Live. Um, I think it's a cool idea for organizations once in a while to do a tour around their office and uh, to start talking to uh, administrative staff and people that work in fundraising and talking about what each person does and getting their thoughts on the organization. And this has an impact in a couple ways. Again, it, it really drives home the, the fact that your organization has resources and it has dedicated individuals who are there working every day um, towards advancing the mission. And you can see how much the employees care about it and how everybody's on the same team. I think that's a really powerful thing for donors to see. And um, um, getting to know that there's a lot more that goes into the organization that their fundraising dollars are support than just the programmatic activity on, on the ground. You know, it's the people that are answering the phones. Um, it's the people, your development staff, um, copywriters, your web team, um, going just around the office. And if you have too big of an office to do it in one stream, you could always break it up and kind of talk to a different person um, each week. At the water cooler, you can make a segment out of it. And just describing what it is people do because when, when, when donors see that employees at an organization are enthusiastic about their cause, that enthusiasm is very contagious. And that's a unique thing that Facebook Live can do that just is not available uh, through other mediums. Um, if you want to go really out of the box, um, Gary Vanderchuk, I consume a ton of his content and uh, I recommend it to anyone in the, in the nonprofit world um, because even when he's talking about uh, for-profit, um, the things going on in the for-profit world, there's a ton of nonprofit applications there. But he has this idea that every small business should do a, a reality show in their office and every office has you know kind of the, the office clown who becomes the personality. And uh, just as a way to engage and, and get more attention from the readers. Now, a lot of nonprofits, a lot of boards are not going to be comfortable with that idea, the idea of doing a reality show. But if you have an out-of-the-box culture, uh, some unique characters in your office, just another thing to consider, um, you know, doing a show about life around your office. I mean, that's certainly something that's going to be unique. Um, and then the other thing is if you uh, have a little bit more of a sophisticated setup and you have... Um, not so much a studio, but just um, something that's visually appealing where you can do uh, live interview segments. Um, interviewing thought leaders um, uh, re uh, that are involved in your mission, I think that's a really uh, cool way to educate the donor further and just uh, disseminate more information out there. Um, something like that is, is extremely valuable. Um, even if it's... Um, interviewing other organizations in your space. So if you're a national organization that, say, focuses on domestic relief and you did a spotlight segment focusing on smaller organizations at the state and the local level that are doing great work in their communities, 
Uh, those organizations are not competing with you. I think sometimes we think about, well, why would you highlight the, the competition? Uh, they're really not competing for your dollars um, because they're operating on a completely different level. But going back to the idea of establishing yourself as an authority figure, you're the authority or organization for this cause, and you care so much about it that you're highlighting the work of organizations that do similar work to you. That's a really powerful statement to make to the donor that you're in it for the right reasons and you're in it for the cause. You're not just in it for yourself. Now, with example number three, we're going to go back to the future a little bit with blogs. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here because I think we all know what a blog is, but blogging has become a bit of a lost art. Um, it's something that um, has been pushed to the background a little bit with more of the modern content marketing uh, techniques that have come out, but it's still tremendously important. And, and one of the reasons why organizations don't do blogs is because we kind of sometimes are guilty of being trapped in a bubble where we think that nobody's going to care about what we have to say. And part of that is just when you're involved in uh, the day-to-day -day activity of a nonprofit organization, just like with some of the Facebook Live stuff, uh, some of the things that your organization is doing or some of your thoughts can seem academic and can seem unremarkable to yourself, but your donors want that information. Um, there's a tremendous book which I'll recommend um, from uh, the author is Lee Elias, it's Think Like a Fan. It's not about nonprofit marketing, but it has tons of nonprofit marketing applications. And, and what I really like about that book in particular is, it, in my view, people that donate to your cause are fans of your cause. And if you think about um, your favorite sports team, you look for information wherever you can get it. So when you think about donors who are fans or enthusiasts, um, if they're on your website, there are donors that are going to read your blogs, and maybe your blog is not going to be responsible for bringing in new donors to the organization, but certainly someone that's on the site that um, may be giving a $25 gift previously, seeing that kind of valuable content and what your organization is doing, again, uh, you're dedicating, you're demonstrating your, your commitment to the cause with the information that you're putting out there and establishing yourself as an authority figure. That is the kind of thing that can push somebody from being a $25 to $100 donor. Um, and maybe there are some people that will go to this site and they are vetting organizations who they want to make a contribution to and they see that you care very much about the cause, you're putting out all kinds of great information, and uh, that um, gets them over the hump and convinces them to be a donor. So this stuff is not easy to measure in the short term, but long term it has a tremendous amount of value. And and just like Facebook Live, when you really flesh it out, there's a lot of blogging opportunities. Um, every organization should do at least a weekly update about programmatically what's going on. Um, but have your staff also write original articles. Um, if you don't feel comfortable doing it and your director of development, look for... Um, your younger staff or even interns. I mean, obviously you can read it before it goes live on the internet, but you're going to have staff that are going to be interested in uh, writing an article, getting their name out there, getting a little bit of exposure and demonstrating their enthusiasm for your great cause. Um, Firsthand accounts. If somebody's on the ground when you're doing a programmatic activity, have them write an article about um, about how that impacted them and, and how and their experience of the day. 
Again, enthusiasm for nonprofit causes is extremely contagious. And, and one of the best ways to generate enthusiasm and, and one that really is not utilized a lot is having um, people at your organization expressing that enthusiasm on the internet, whether it's through videos or in this case, blogs. Um, think pieces, if there's abstract concepts about things related to your cause. Again, if your organization works with veterans and um, you want, and somebody wants to write a paper uh, or uh, a blog about um, ideas for ways to, uh, to help deal with the suicide epidemic that's facing uh, veterans, um, things related to your cause. Um, encourage your, tha- your, your, your staff to, to be thinking about bigger picture ideas that are related to your mission. Again, think about John Deere. They did not publish a, a 20-page magazine about tractors. It was about bigger picture concepts related to their mission. When you think about it that way, there's a lot of opportunities for think pieces on things that are going to be related to your cause. And um, besides uh, besides the impact that it makes on people that are on your organization, um, blogs will also help tremendously with your SEO, and they live forever. So when you first start blogging, it may not look impressive at first, but over time, if you're doing a weekly or even a monthly blog, um, it adds up very quickly, it lives forever on the internet, and it really makes your organization look like an expert on your cause. Now we're going to get a little bit meta with our fourth idea, and we're going to talk about podcasts. Now, I don't like making definitive statements as a rule, because I don't think there are many absolutes in life, but I will make this one. In my opinion, every nonprofit organization in America should have a podcast. In fact, I would expand on that to say every small business should have a podcast as well. Now, if I made that statement um, a couple of years ago, you would have thought that I was crazy um, because in order to do a podcast, you needed access to expensive equipment, you needed software to edit the podcast, or you needed access to a podcasting studio, something that just is not realistic for most people or certainly most nonprofit organizations. Um, but um, there's been a, a game changer in the last couple of years, uh, and it's the app Anchor. Um, Anchor is available on iPhones and Android devices, and I will be completely honest, I am recording this podcast on Anchor, and it is super easy. In the same way that Facebook Live made video a realistic possibility for bandwidth-challenged organizations, um, Anchor can do the same for nonprofits. Now, by all means, if you have access to more sophisticated equipment, you should use it. Better audio quality is always um, is never a bad thing, but more organizations than you think are probably recording their podcasts on Anchor. In fact, a lot of the other podcasts that you listen to are probably recorded on iPhones as well. Um, the audio quality is is good that it's um, it, it's hard to notice. Um, but specifically, why I'm so big on podcasts is. Um, in the hierarchy of people that are fans or interest in things, I look at it as there's a top 10% of people that are not just, um, that don't just have interests, they have passions. And when they have those passions, they want to seek out information in 
all different places, whether it's online or it's audio or it's on television. I mean, think about something that you're very passionate about, whether it's a sports team or it's a hobby, and think about how you'll go out of your way to look for information. And basically what podcasting has done is it has created a marketplace for those 10 percenters. There's hundreds of thousands of podcasts and there's more being added every day. And a lot of them have very small audiences that are um, dedicated to very niche issues, but are catered towards people that have passionate interests in those niche issues. And um, if you think that no one's going to listen to your podcast, which is a, a big reason, a big hurdle why people or organizations uh, don't do podcasts, because they look at the numbers and they think it's small and, and they think that nobody's going to care, um, listen to this. The company Smeed, who uh, you may not know who Smeed is, but you probably have their products in your office. They make those manila envelopes that uh, are in just about every office in America. They have a podcast called Keeping You Organized that for five years has been in the top 10% of uh, downloads. Uh, that's according to AdAge. So if there's a podcast dedicated to organizational skills that's getting thousands of listens every month, there are a group of people that are going to be interested in hearing long-form audio content about what your organization is doing. And podcasting gives you the ability to have that long-form content that even is not necessarily conducive to Facebook Live. So you can do podcasts and uh, interview people that your organization has helped. You can interview experts either internally or externally from your organization. Um, you can disseminate information about like-minded groups if you want to have organ if you want to um, uh, interview other organizations that are doing similar work and highlight their work. Again, establish your organization as an authority figure and disseminating information to the public. That's something that's extremely valuable. Um, it can really be whatever you want it to be as long as it's providing value that your your donors um, would not be able to get through other means. Um, the only thing I would uh, say if you're going to start a podcast is do not make it into an infomercial. Again, stick to the principles of content marketing. Make it about value or access um, Audio streams of live events also and along the access line, same thing we talked about for Facebook Live. That's a possibility um, to do uh, for, if not for a podcast, but to put into a podcast stream is to do uh, audio streams of your live events as well. Um, but don't make it about selling donations. Um, the people you're reaching, if you're providing valuable organizations, that will come organically. Even if it's a small number of people that are listening to your podcast at first, those are people that are intensely interested in your organization and hence are, are extremely valuable. And um, this is the kind of content which can get somebody from being a small donor to a mid-level donor, or maybe if you have a mid-level donor that's consuming lots of information, um, get them over the hurdle to becoming a major donor. Um, Podcasting is an extremely important platform for people that are intensely interested in your organization. Um, the, have, it, have the focus be on building a community. And the numbers are going to be small at first. Um, for an example, I will be thrilled if 10 people download this podcast um, for this first pilot episode. But 
if you're putting out content that's useful, that's educated, um, that's informative, and that's uh, demonstrating value to the listener uh, in an empathetic way, people will listen and they will share it, they will rate it, and that audience will grow over time. And, um, uh, you know, the, the, the example I would give about how how to do uh, how to build a community is Trader Joe's has one of the top podcasts in the country it gets over 30,000 downloads uh per month and uh Trader Joe's is not using their podcast to sell almond milk Trader Joe's is talking about things related to the mission of their company uh they may be talking about the inner workings at Trader Joe's you know, how they're saving energy and things like that. So you could certainly talk about your organization, the work that you're doing, but do not make it an infomercial. And um, if you're going to ask for donations at the end of the year or something like that, that's fine. But have the focus be uh, on providing value, just like um, the rest of these examples. It needs to be about what is the uh, what is the the listener or the reader getting out of it um, as opposed to promoting the organization. Now, these are just four examples. There are countless of others that we can go into, you know, as far as where should your organization be when it comes to content marketing, uh, you should really look at your donors. And if you have information that you have a, a, a swath of donors that are using any type of platform, you should really consider creating a uh, content marketing program specific to that platform. Again, have it be a program. Don't just put something out there once and uh, see that it doesn't work and give up on it because that's that's not usually the way content marketing works. Usually it is a longer term investment and you create a program, you create a plan, and then look at it six months down the line and see is the is the behavior of your donors changing? Um, are you bringing in more money from your donors because you're putting out that content? But um, platforms could be Instagram, LinkedIn, Medium, YouTube, Snapchat, if you're lucky enough to have young donors that are on Snapchat. Um, talk to your donors. You know, you, you could, Facebook's a great opportunity to do this. Find out where they are, what platforms are they using, and where do they want to receive information about your organization. And now we've come to the closing segment here on the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast, and it's a segment I like to call Work-Life Balance, where I give you a work tip for nonprofit fundraising, and then something from my downtime. Could be a, a book or a movie, just something to help, for, to help you with the uh, life part of your work-life balance, because as we know, both are equally important. And uh, today's work tip is a very simple one. For every piece of content you put out there, ask yourself one question. Does this provide value? And if the answer is yes, you're good to go. Because the truth is, um, it's good not to overthink content marketing at first. The only way you're going to find out what your audience is going to respond to is by putting out information. And as long as it's not something that's self-serving or something that's superficial, as long as it's providing real value uh, to, to your audience, um, it's worth putting out there and seeing what kind of reaction you get. And, and quicker than you think, you'll figure out um, what types of things your audience responds to. And for the, uh, the, the life tip, um, this comes from Netflix. It's the uh, documentary Fire. And um, if you're not familiar with the Fire Festival, um, it was um, a big news story uh, about a year ago, I want to say. Um, 
it, it really is is one of the most uh, remarkable examples of uh, how powerful marketing can be, but also um, how responsible we need to be uh, with marketing. With great power, of course, comes great responsibility. And um, the Fire Festival, it was a, a music festival that was supposed to be the uh, greatest music festival of all time. Um, the promoters, uh, I believe um, Ja Rule was, uh, was involved in this. Um, the promoters um, put out a promo video that said that they were going to uh, buy an island in the Caribbean that used to be owned by Pablo Escobar. And um, they flew all kinds of supermodels down for the promo shoot. And they were going to have um, uh, two days of bands and all kinds of gourmet food. And it was supposed to be just an amazing escape luxury experience. Well, um, spoiler alert, they ended up having uh, the show in a back lot of a Sandals resort and um, needless to say, they did not. Um, it did not live up to expectations. The fire festival, and I won't give any more than way than that if you're not familiar with it. But uh, it's definitely worth checking out, and um, really, just uh, it, it really is just shows uh, how uh, a two minute YouTube video can change everything for an organization or for a company if it's done um, done in a way that's going to cause it to go viral. But uh, it, it's also highlights the importance of being authentic and not making promises that you can't keep because those will catch up to you sooner than later. And that's exactly what the organizers of the Fire Festival found out. And that's it. We've reached the end of the pilot episode of the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. Um, I've had a ton of fun doing this. Um, this has been something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. It's it's a true passion project, and I can't wait to see where this podcast goes. Uh, I really want to focus on some interesting and different topics that are affecting the nonprofit community and uh, really help uh, deconstruct some, some complicated issues, uh, maybe do some interviews along the way as well. That would be great. So uh, I, I thank you for listening, and I... Uh, welcome any feedback that you have. This is really meant to be a conversation with the nonprofit community. So any feedback, any suggestions for the show, good, bad, or otherwise, I'd love to hear them all. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I am Dan Saunders. You can also uh, reach out to me on Twitter. My handle is at MKTG Saunders, or you can email the show. Uh, dynamicnonprofits at gmail.com is our email address. And uh, I'd love to hear any comments, questions, feedback, criticism, anything you have to say, please feel free to send it my way. But um, I promise I will talk to you all real soon. Thank you so much for listening. And um, once again, this is Dan Saunders. This is the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'll talk to you later. Good night from New Jersey, home of the best bagels and pizza in America. Sorry, Chicago.